The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Okay, let's move on now to uh, the book of Acts. We are in chapter 18. For those of you who were not here last week, or maybe you're here with us just visiting or haven't been here in a while, bring you up to speed. We're going through the book of Acts together, gone chapter at a time. And we are now in that section of the book that really focuses in on the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which is really chapter 13 through the rest of the book. It covers about uh, the ministry of the Apostle Paul from the time he got saved till about uh, 60 A.D. So it's about a 30-year period, actually a little less, 20 years of Paul's ministry uh, as he began called as a special apostle of God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, the Greek world, the non-Jerusalem, non-Jewish world. And we looked at his first missionary journey. Now Paul's on his second missionary journey. And uh, that started in chapter 16, 17, and now 18. And Paul's going to be on this uh, missionary journey, the second missionary journey, for a couple of years, a little more than two years. And we are now at the tail end of his second uh, missionary journey because he's in Corinth now. He's been to a few other cities and his second missionary journey really culminates and ends and is wrapped up in the city of Corinth. So we have the privilege today of looking at it. Uh, the narrative in Acts 18 covering the ministry of Paul planting a church in Corinth goes from verses 1 to 18. Today we're just going to look at the first 11 verses because it is just loaded uh, with blessing and examples for us to follow. Uh, I titled the sermon, Church Planting in Corinth, church planting in Corinth. That's what Paul's doing. He's, he's planting churches. He's going, for the most part, to places that don't have churches. He's going to incredibly humanistic pagan cities where most folks who lived there had never heard of Jesus Christ or the gospel. So this is really groundbreaking. And we have our mission trips here at our church, and usually those are like three days, five days, maybe two weeks. We call that a mission trip. Paul's been on this mission trip now for about six months away from his home church. That's a long time, spending much of that time by himself in danger, traveling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, literally putting his life on the line for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that it's been rigorous. It's been challenging. And now Paul enters into this city called Corinth. Let me read the first 11 verses as Paul is now moving on from Athens. That's where we were last week, the great intellectual capital of the world 2,000 years ago, where Paul just was uh, devastated uh, and just in shock at the proliferation of idols and temples that he saw when he was in Athens. And now he's leaving that place. He wasn't in Athens very long at all. And so he leaves, and he gets, now he's going to go about 50 miles immediately. He's down in southern Greece called Achaia, and he's going to go about 50 miles to the west. Actually, this was his destination was Corinth, and he arrives, starting at verse 1. After these things, after he left Athens, Paul came to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, Aquila and Priscilla, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, a leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were 
believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So here's Paul leaving Athens and entering this. It was a huge city, an important city, the city of Corinth. Significant city. And he's going to end up staying there for actually almost two years. He's going to settle down in Corinth, which is very different than it. We've seen that he's been to all these other cities, planted a church, and he was there for a couple of weeks, three weeks, maybe a month, uh, at most maybe a couple of months, and then left the believers there intact and then had to go to the next city, usually because he got chased out of town. So he was on the run. There's, there was no time to stop, especially in Thessalonica, which is on this second, second missionary journey where he went to Thessalonia, preached the gospel, saw people get saved, and then there was just incredible persecution and hostility, particularly from the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica to the point where Paul couldn't stay there. And they literally chased him out of town. And they made an edict to some of the other Christians that are saying, that man is never allowed in our city again. Paul was banished from Thessalonica, could never go back. And he was even there for a month. So that was a tremendous challenge. How does Paul pastor that church of brand new believers? Give them doctrine, impart truth to them, meet their needs, counsel, encourage, raise up leadership. How does he do that? What What a tremendous challenge. Paul's a church planter. He's planting churches. So the unique thing about Corinth is that he gets to stay there for two years, which is unprecedented in his ministry thus far. He's never able to stay anywhere for too long. I can't imagine trying to plan a church where you only get, okay, you got four weeks to go in there, cold turkey, introduce yourself, meet people. You have no core group going with you. You're pretty much by yourself, one or two assistants. Preach the gospel, see him get saved, plant a church, raise up leadership, give him sufficient doctrine, and then leave. And trust that that church remains in perpetuity and grows in the Lord in the midst of an incredibly hostile environment. What a challenge. But that was Paul's calling. So Corinth is different because he's going to get to stay there for two years. So the Corinthians were very privileged to have an apostle as their founding pastor. Can you imagine? Who's your pastor? The apostle Paul. Who's your pastor? Oh, just Cliff. I'd rather have the Apostle Paul. So you can imagine that the Corinthians, they just came to absolutely love and adore Paul and just appreciate everything that he did for them sacrificially and how he was gifted by God to be an apostle and a servant and how he loved them and invested two years of labor into their life and never asking them for money and doing everything out of a heart of self selfless service to them and he was so eloquent and, and the speaker of God, and so they came to appreciate Not, we know that from his letters, First and Second Corinthians, that the Corinthians, actually, as soon as Paul left, Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul, they began to badmouth him, undermine him, gossip about him, question his authority publicly so that the reputation of the Corinthian church went abroad and other churches heard about it, found out about it. Paul heard about it, broke his heart. Wow, I, I planted this church. I, I begot you through the gospel. You're, you're my children in the Lord. I was there for two years. I'm your spiritual father. How can you? So that's what you hear echoed in the first and second Corinthians. Paul's heart broken. It's with you for two years. And then I began to think, well, wow. Because he loved the Thessalonians so much. As you read those epistles, well, he was only there for a month. And the Philippians, well, he was only there for a very short period of time, not more than two months. And then Corinth, he's there for two years. And I just thought, you know, that old adage is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. It really does. Got a little too familiar with the Apostle Paul. Spent a little too much time with him and actually saw his weaknesses. Oh, you know what? He's not made of pillar. He's actually... A human being like the rest of us. He has sin living in him. He's a sinner. He looks like a hypocrite at times. I've seen Paul's weaknesses. And he's supposed to be an apostle. That's exactly what happened. 
Then another adage that Jesus himself quoted that a prophet is not welcome in his home town. Pretty sad. Let's go ahead and look at the outline here. Church planting in Corinth. And really, this is part one because we'll look at part two next week. It's amazing. Uh, we got three points there that I lined up for you. Point number one regarding church planting, verses one through three. Paul's utility. Utility. What do I mean by that? Utility has a lot of different meanings. Uh, usefulness. Efficacy. Work. Talking about Paul's work ethic here. As a man of God, as a Christian of integrity, as a faithful, tireless church planter, and also as a supernaturally commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's utility, his efficacy, his tremendous work ethic when it came to church planting from scratch, that's what's required. You need amazing human stamina, and you also need the supernatural strength provided that only God can give. So Paul's utility, Paul remained practical in church planting, practical. And we see that, some of those highlights in verses 1 through 3, you see it all throughout his life. But what I'm emphasizing here in terms of practical is Paul was, even though he's an apostle, uh, it wasn't above himself to work hard, to get his fingernails dirty, to get calluses on his hands to wash the dirty feet of the saints, actually to wash the dirty feet of people who weren't even saints yet, pathetic sinners, the heart of love, incredible work ethic. And that's how he typified himself in his ministry in the city of Corinth. So let's go ahead and look at the passage here, point number one, Paul's utility. Before we do, one thing that just struck me in this passage, in verses, so his account of Corinth is in verses 1 through 18. And as I'm reading through it, you come across seven historical cities or areas that are beyond dispute in terms of their actual existence and their location, which tells me this is a historical passage. This is reliable history that Luke is giving us. You can count on God's word once again. Who's going to dispute it? Uh, verse 1, Athens. You can find that in any humanistic, evolutionary, secular unbelieving encyclopedia. This is a real city. This isn't fiction. This isn't mythological. This isn't made up. He was in Athens. Then verse one, uh, two, 1 also says Corinth. In verse uh, 2, talks about Pontus, a real place. Uh, Rome at the end of verse 2. Macedonia in verse 5. Verse 12, Achaia. And verse 18, Syria. Those are all real places you could go visit today. Unlike some religious books of the large religions of the world that have made up fictitious, non-existent cities and locations that can't be validated anywhere in the history of humanity. So this is a historical context. Not only that, this passage is key because it provides a, a historical or chronological anchor or plumb line for the chronology of the entire book of the book of Acts. And that is in two places. Verse 2, it mentions Claudius. He was a real man. Claudius. He was a Roman emperor. He came after Caligula, and he came before Nero. It's all kinds of information about Claudius. He's mentioned in verse 2. We know when he reigned. We know when he lived. Not only that, even more specifically in verse 12, Gallio. Not Galileo, different guy. Gallio. Who was Gallio? Verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul, that is a very specific term, Proconsul used in Rome of specific rulers slash governors in the Roman Empire during this period of time. Many in history have written about Gallio. He was a real man. Many famous historians 2,000 years ago wrote about him and referred to him from Seneca, the famous Roman philosopher slash moralist, because that was his brother, and wrote of Gallio. Tacitus, Pliny, and several others wrote specifically about this ruler named Gallio and give biographical information about him. There's even uh, archaeological findings we have today that can be seen, touched, read in museums with this man and the period of his reign etched in stone. 
It's amazing, Gallio. And we, the one thing we know about Gallio is that he ruled for a very short period of time as the proconsul in Achaia, which is in southern Greece. That's why this is so significant. It is undeniable. It's indisputable. Gallio was the proconsul of this area in southern Greece in Achaia. It's called 52 to 53 A.D. And so that gives us a precision point of chronology. Once again, validating that what we are reading is true history. You can't, which flies in the face of so much we hear so often from the critics, not just outside the church, but even inside the church. And I'm reminded of this when I was watching a YouTube video. I mentioned this earlier of the number one famous atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins. And he's just categorically dismissing all the historicity of these books in the Bible and saying, making broad stroke statements, saying things like, well, everybody knows. And all the scholars agree that nothing in the Bible is historical or real. He even questions the, the existence of Jesus as a man and dismissing all of it. It's all mythology, didn't exist. Thinking, what, are you kidding me? Have you read Acts 18, Richard? You can't dismiss this. Or one thing that I do in my seminary where I teach up in Vallejo at the Cornerstone Seminary, a little commercial for Cornerstone Seminary, by the way. Wonderful seminary up uh, near Vallejo. Um, been teaching there like 10 or 11 years. In the last few years, what I've been doing is I give the guys in my class, the men, some of these, many of them are pastors and the rest of them are studying to be pastors. They get their textbooks and a lot of these textbooks are written by well-known, popular, cutting-edge so-called evangelicals in America today and even in Europe. Influential evangelicals. And then what I've been doing is we've, we're Skyping these world-famous scholars into my class and we dialogue with them after we read their books. And it's amazing how many of these evangelical scholars, even recently as we've been dialoguing with them, and we'll, about an hour, they'll give us an hour of time, and, we'll, and my students get to ask them questions based on their book and those kind of things. And we did this, uh, we've done this the last couple times in the last month. And these evangelical scholars denied that Adam was a real man. These evangelical Protestant Christian scholars here in America who say they believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture say that Adam was not a real man. And a couple of them even argue that Noah was not a real man. This was just recently. And so then when all my students were done asking questions, I, I got to ask my questions. And, Professor, thanks for your time. really appreciate it. I just got a question. I'm, you said that Adam probably wasn't real and Noah wasn't real. Uh, where's the first real guy in Genesis then? And this was three weeks ago. And the, the evangelical scholar told me, well, none of the people in Genesis are real. And then my class, we all had a heart attack, fell over, got back up. I said, so you don't believe Abraham is real? He said, nope. Well, let's see. What about Isaac and Jacob? Nope. Wow. Jacob, Jacob, who became Israel. So you don't believe Israel, Jacob was a real guy? Nope. Well, he, he wasn't. Of course not. That's what he said. Oh, okay. So, wow. Because the Bible argues that the nation of Israel, the Jews came from Jacob. So you don't believe that the Jews came from this guy named Jacob? Nope. Of course not. The way, uh, do you know where the Jews came from then? Well, of course I do. <laughs> okay, then tell us. And then he talked for a couple minutes. I had no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and then that and I said, thanks for being with us. And then we closed and we were done. Now, that's not a critic, an atheist, an agnostic. That is somebody actually who teaches at an evangelical Christian college slash university slash seminary who says he believes in Jesus, believes in the gospel, believes in, get this, inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. The Bible is the Word of God, and yet nobody in Genesis is real. So I just wanted you to be aware of what's going on in, and how bad it is getting. So that's why this was so refreshing. This is real stuff. Thank you, Luke. So let's go ahead and look at Luke's wonderful account of Paul and his church planting. So we start. Paul is in Athens, not for very long mostly by himself. Then he meets uh, Silas and Timothy for a short period, and then he sends them off again, and he commissions back to other churches like Thessalonica and up in Macedonia to encourage those churches. And he said, hey, and then we'll rendezvous in Corinth. I'm headed to Corinth. We'll meet you there in whatever it was, two, three weeks. So after these things, after leaving Athens, uh, Athens, so after these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now, we do know that 
Paul didn't make much impact in Athens. He was there for a short period of time. That wasn't his original goal anyway, but he thought, well, he's around. I'm going to share the gospel. God emboldened him to do it to all those pagans. And so he's interacting with, and so a few people, very few people that are notified got saved in Athens from what we know. But mostly he was ridiculed and condemned and made fun of because they, the Athenians prided themselves on how intelligent they were. They were the smartest people in the world. They were the intellectual capital of the world. And this guy, Paul, he's an idiot. They called him an idiot. You're a fool. You're an idiot. This is stupid stuff. This is foolish. This doesn't make any sense. You don't know what you're talking about. And that's kind of the greeting he got. And we are uh, academic scholars. We are the Greeks. We pride ourselves on our lineage and the wisest men in the history of the world. That was their attitude. And they were very condescending, looking down their nose at this stranger named Paul. And he didn't get a, a warm reception from them at all. And they were not really receptive to the gospel. And they just thought it was foolishness. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians, keeping in mind that when Paul is writing the Corinthians in 55 AD, he is thinking what happened as his experience in Athens with those erudite Greek poets, scholars, who prided themselves on being the wisest people in the world, and he didn't get a warm, receptive heart to the gospel, he writes to the Corinthians and says, you know what? Uh, I came to speak a normal language. I came with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't come as a wise man. I didn't come as a philosopher. I didn't come as a debater. And as a result, you know, the Greeks, they're just looking for wisdom, and they thought I was an idiot. So he lets the Corinthians know, and he says, look at us. Look at those who do get saved. Not many wise, not many noble, not many respectable. We're just kind of the scum of the earth. We're the uneducated ones. We're kind of the dumb and stupid ones. That's who God's saving in mass. So it's a good reminder. So that was his experience at Athens. So not very fruitful, not very long there, but now he goes to Corinth, verse 1. And when he's in Corinth, verse 2, he found a Jew. Corinth is a massive city. It's got hundreds of thousands of people in it at the time. It is the capital of Achaia at that time. It, It is a massive commercial center. It's got a sea on the right and a sea on the left. And it's a major thoroughfare from Asia to Rome as far as trading and bartering and people are coming and going. And it's just a hot spot in the then known world in Paul's day because of its location. Absolutely ideal. And it's just thronging with people from all over the world. It was a cosmopolitan city by virtue of it's just uh, those who lived there as long-term residents because there were Romans, there were Greeks, Gentiles, and there were some Jews there. Add to that, people coming from all over the world doing their trade. And so that's where he is in Corinth. And while he's there, it says he found a Jew. Well, how did he find a Jew? Well, we know there was a synagogue there. That's how he found a Jew. Probably. Maybe in the synagogue. Verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla. Okay, so here's Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. Mentioned here a couple times in the book of Acts. Mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16. Mentioned in Romans 16. A, a delightful, wonderful married couple. They are believers. Paul doesn't say anything about Aquila and Priscilla being converted in this passage. But he mentions several people being converted. He doesn't mention that. And it could be that Aquila was probably already a Jewish Christian. And maybe he did go to synagogue. Maybe that we don't know where him and Paul met, but Paul amazingly, somehow, in this entire massive city, he committed or found, you know, and ran into Aquila, who was just a delightful man. Maybe it was because they met in the marketplace and there was, he went, you know, they have their little tables in the bazaars and they're selling all their stuff. And Paul goes in and he's, he's a leather worker and he made tents for a living. And that's how his dad trained him as a good Jewish man would, giving, training his uh, young son in a trade. And so Paul's out in the Agora or the marketplace there in Corinth. They, they had one then. It still exists today. You can visit it. It's made of stone. The marketplace in the middle of the city. So Paul could have been going around shopping, commiserating, looking around in the city and came over. Oh, there's tent makers. And then, oh, I'm a tent maker too. And they talk and shop. And Oh, you're Jewish? Oh, so am I. Oh, you're from Pontus? Uh, Turkey, really? so am I. I'm Tarsus. I'm from Tarsus. You're up north. I'm down south. Wow, we have a lot. You know Jesus? Seriously? How did you come to know Jesus? Where are you from? Well, I've actually been recently spending time with my wife in Rome. And there's a church in Rome. Wow, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a church in Rome already? I wanted to go to Rome, but I haven't even been there yet, and there's already a church? Amazing. How'd that happen? Then we go to, remember Acts chapter 2? Probably not. On the day of Pentecost. 
Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 people get saved, and there were visitors from all over the Jewish world there, and it says there were pilgrims from Pontus, which is in Turkey. That's where he's from. That's where Aquila's from, Pontus. Heard the gospel. People got saved, at least people from Pontus. And, or it could be also in Acts chapter 2, it says, and visitors from Rome were there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So people heard the gospel, got saved, went back to their hometowns, in Pontus, northern Turkey, in Rome. And it could very well be that that was the influence where eventually Aquila heard the gospel. He got saved, his wife got saved, and they were just a wonderful, godly, Christian, giving couple. And him and Paul, they hit it off right away. And, you know, Paul needed this. Uh, He needed to be encouraged by God. Because when he came into Corinth... You can read uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3, and it says, Paul reminds the Corinthians, man, do you not remember? When I came to you the first time in 51, 52 AD into the city of Corinth for the first time, I was down. I was discouraged. Get this. I was trembling. When we think of the amazing, courageous apostle Paul, we don't think of Paul trembling. Trembling. Trembling from what? Well, maybe some fear. But also trembling maybe from sickness. We know when Paul was on the road, he was sick physically. Trembling. Also, he's, who knows if he's even recovered from the broken ribs that he received in Philippi. Where he's pummeled almost to death with rods. He's kind of got his tail between his legs. He's by himself. He's isolated. His friends aren't around. He just got rejected in Athens. Then he comes into court. And then he's just overwhelmed by... Corinth is a city of just blatant sexual immorality. Speaking of which, a little highlight on Corinth. This city, Corinth, uh, was totally destroyed. I mean, it was a thriving city, but in uh, 146 B.C., it was just absolutely destroyed by the Romans, and they just raised it or laid it to the ground. They burned it. And for almost 100 years, Corinth just sat there in the ashes, in the rubble. Then Julius Caesar came along, and he rebuilt it because he saw its great potential as a seaport in uh 46 B.C., and then it just it blossomed, it grew, and it became the most thriving city in that area. And that's why it became the capital in a Roman colony, thanks to Julius Caesar. And then it became the commercial capital as well as the political capital of that area called Achaia. So it was the chief city, and it even surpassed Athens in the days of Paul. It had a cosmopolitan population, like we said, um, but also it was given over to total sexual immorality. And the pagans there, they had their idols, not as many as Athens did. They had their uh, statues. They had their uh, buildings they built dedicated to God. And the most prominent one in Corinth was uh, a temple dedicated to Aphrodite. And it sat on what was called the, the Acropolis. Most major Greek cities had an Acropolis. What is that? It's like the highest point in the city, like a, a little mountain. And they'd find the highest place in the city, and then they'd go build a temple to their most esteemed god or goddess in that city on the Acropolis. What is Acropolis? Acropolis is two words. Acro means air, up the sky. Acro, like acrobat, flies in the air. Or acrophobia, afraid of heights. Acropolis. And then polis is city, metropolis. And so Corinth had... An Acropolis. And they had like a, a temple up there dedicated to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, procreation, beauty, sex, nudity. And in the temple of Aphrodite, there in Corinth in Paul's day, they had by way of worship, they had temple prostitutes whose religion was whoredom. Illegitimate sex. And it was said that in the evenings, the thousand or so temple prostitutes would come down the hill into the city proper and apply their trade from all these seafaring men from all over the world. Very lucrative. And it wasn't just about economics. It was religious worship. And because Aphrodite, Aphrodite, by the way, aphrodisiac, that which stimulates the sexual senses and desires, that's where we get the word. 
That's how, that's what Corinth came to. That was a byword for Corinth was sexual immorality. It was rampant. It was gross. It was perverted. It was proliferated everywhere. You couldn't turn without seeing it being exposed to it. And that's what Paul was confronted with. So he's shocked when he goes to Athens because he'd never seen so many idols. Then he goes to Corinth thinking he's going to get a break. And he is just uh, hit with all this blatant, outright sexual immorality in his face. And he is discouraged. Kind of reminds me of San Francisco. Did you hear about San Francisco this week? Was that yesterday where they had their, their gay, uh, the, I'm not, it was the naked parade? Seriously, in San Francisco, down the streets, they had the naked parade. And it was in the news. And there, there were pictures in the news. But in, in the news, they showed, you know, they were trying to be modest or whatever. Sounds like, I was just thinking, man, this sounds like Corinth. The naked parade in San Francisco. And it, it was ironic. All the pictures that I saw, by the way, they weren't rated R. They, you know, they, but I was thinking, everybody's like, like fat and overweight that's naked. They're like all ugly. I mean, nobody wants to look at these. Well, anyway, that's a different topic. But in other words, Corinth is a city that would be very much like, I mean, between Athens and Corinth, Athens, the uh, which speaks of intellectual pride, and then uh, Corinth, uh, sensual lust, and wrap those all into one. And what do you have? You have Northern California. So this is very relevant for us. We can identify with this. You know what? Humanity is the same. It always manifests itself the same way, inevitably. So, so that's where Paul is. He is discouraged. Uh, all that, going back to verse 2, he is encouraged. I mean, this is providential provision by God where just, you know, God is always perfect in his timing to just send somebody to encourage you when you're down and discouraged. Because Paul was just at the bottom. And we don't think of Paul being rock bottom in terms of being discouraged. And But he was. He wrote about it in, I already read, uh, talked about 1 Corinthians 2, but also in Thessalonians. When Paul was in Corinth for almost two years, while in Corinth, Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians. So that's interesting background. And you read those letters, and especially in 2 Thessalonians, Paul talked about how incredibly discouraged he was as he's writing. I think it's in chapter 3. He was grieved. He was down. He was lonely. He was fretting. He couldn't sleep by all these other challenges before him. And at the same time, one thing that's keeping him up and burdening him and not allowing him to sleep is his Heart is heavy for these new believers in Thessalonica in a very persecuted city. He can't sleep because of his sheep. He's wondering the condition of his sheep. That is the life of a pastor if the pastor actually loves his people. And I I love Paul in that he's an apostle. He's a, a man of authority. And yet in his letters, he pleads with his people to pray for him. He says it to the Thessalonians, pray for me. He says it to the Ephesians and Ephesians, pray for me. What does he pray for? Pray for courage. Pray for boldness. Pray for courage. You need courage, Paul? You seem fearless. No, he he needed to be encouraged. He needed the supernatural prayers of the saints. He needed people interceding him on a regular basis. He is down in God. One thing God does is provides a quill and Priscilla to him. So he meets up with them, uh, going on in verse 2, having recently come from Italy, Uh, with his wife, Priscilla. Well, why did they come from Italy, probably Rome, to Corinth? Probably Rome because uh, I think it's Romans 16.3 says that Aquila and Priscilla had a church in their home, which means Aquila and Priscilla were probably wealthy, generous, and they had a Christian church. They hosted the Christian church in their home at Rome. And now they're cast out. And they had to flee. So they flee to Corinth uh, because Claudius, the emperor, verse 2, Claudius was the uncle of Caligula. Caligula was probably the most notorious, horrible, insane, perverted Roman emperor there was next to Nero. And right between Caligula and Nero is Claudius. Claudius is the uncle of uh, his predecessor. And so look at the middle of the verse there. Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave. So when Claudius took over the reins, initially he allowed the Jews, but uh, Jews began creating a disturbance. And it was probably associated with the fact of Jews and Christians having their theological squabbles. And that was creating 
uh, disorder in the Romans. They didn't like that in the Roman emperors, so they banished, you know, I'm going to get rid of this problem, and he banished all Jews. He didn't care if they were Jewish Jews or Christian Jews. They're all the same in his mind. And all the Jews were banished. And Claudius did this. We know that he gave a decree in 49. There's another key marker. He, he made this decree in 49 A.D. So in 49 A.D., that's probably when Aquila came here. So Aquila's been in the city of Corinth for about maybe three years. And that's given him enough time to make money. Plus, he probably had wealth. And so he was able to establish himself in Corinth. And he probably had a nice home. And he was a welcoming, hospitable man. And that's why he could let Paul in. That's where Paul lived for a while in Aquila's home. So he came to them at the end of verse 2. So Paul comes to uh, Aquila and Priscilla, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, tent making, he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, and they were and they were working. They were working. So when Paul went to... How did Paul afford to live for two years in Corinth? How did he afford that? How could he eat? How did he pay his bills? Uh, well, he tells us in several letters. He, but he, he told the Corinthians, he reminded them, you know what, while I was with you, preaching the gospel, planning the church, shepherding you, being your pastor as an apostle, I didn't ask you for money. I didn't pass the plate and ask you to support me. I did it as a labor of love. I, I wanted to trust God. I didn't want to be a stumbling block to you. And so two things. Paul relied on generous giving from other churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, and other churches, gave him money that helped him. But also he worked the entire time. He worked a second, third job. That's what pastors usually have to do, especially if they're church planters. It's not uncommon for a pastor who's starting a church and pastoring a church and shepherding a church, and then he's got like two, three, four jobs on the side. Not just the head pastor, but people who work at church full time. Paul was not afraid of work. Paul was a hard worker. Paul says in epistles, in Ephesians chapter 20, in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, he reminds the churches, remember, be, follow my example. What was my example? I was a hard worker. I labored among you. He used that word very specifically of laboring and toiling. It was burdensome. Night and day I worked so I wouldn't be a financial burden to you, he says to the Ephesians and to the Thessalonians. Night and day. Paul knew Genesis 3 when God said, because of the curse, you shall get an existence in this life by the sweat of the brow. You must work. You must work hard. That is your lot in this life. Paul knew it had the right attitude about it, he worked hard. And he said, follow my example, and even told the Thessalonians. I understand in your congregation, there at the church, you got some lazy people. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. There, I understand there are people there in your church who are able-bodied and are beggars. They don't pay for things themselves. They're not willing to work. They're idle. They're lazy. Shame on them. It is harsh language from Paul. But he's reminding them, if you are able-bodied, especially if you are a man, you need to be working. And then Paul gave us that proverb in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As I said when I was with you, if a man is not willing to work, then don't let him eat. Wow, Paul. But that was God's decree in Genesis 3. That is the lot of humanity. God blesses hard work. There's fruit from hard work. God will bless your soul from hard work. There's good sleep from hard work. This is what Paul did. So he's applying his trade. So he begins his ministry there in Corinth, working hard day and night. Now with Aquila, working with his hands. And he made uh, the tent making there. They probably used goat hair historically, they believe. And he made uh, tents and also portable tents and those kind of things. Probably sold them in the marketplace and had an income to sustain himself so he wouldn't be a burden on the Corinthians as he's trying to plant a church. Hard worker, great examples for us. Thank you. Paul, let's go on to the next couple of verses. Uh, point number two, after Paul's utility, number two is the Jews' hostility. Paul faced opposition while church planning. Opposite. Can you imagine Paul going around preaching Jesus, preaching the Bible, and some people are getting upset? Can you imagine that? Going around just and telling people they're sinners that that hurts their feelings. Can you imagine people getting upset by someone telling you that you're, you're a sinner and you're getting huffy and upset. You know, things, they don't ever change. We've seen this. This has been Paul's pattern. Every city he goes to, preaches the gospel, starts in the synagogue, talks to the Jews, identifies with them common ground, the Old Testament scriptures. They are true. They are authoritative word of God. Yahweh is indeed God. And let me tell you about sin from Genesis to Malachi. 
and its solution in Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He's the only answer to sin. He's the only way back to God. He's the only way for forgiveness of sin. He's the only way for eternal life. So that's the message they heard. They don't like that. The sin thing. So that's what happens. Uh, so point number two, the Jews' hostility. Paul faced opposition while church planning. So if you're going to be a faithful Christian or a faithful church worker or a faithful church planner, just guaranteed you're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition from outside. You're going to face opposition from inside. And you are going to face opposition from the devil, wherever he is. That's just our lot. And that's what Jesus told Paul when he first got saved in about A.D. 35. On the road to Damascus, he said... He fell off his horse or whatever, and he's on the ground. And Jesus starts speaking to him, says, I'm calling you, and you're going to be a witness for me. And then he told Paul at that time, you are going to suffer. You actually, this is what Jesus said. You must suffer for my name's sake. You must. And here it is almost 15 years later. I wonder if Paul remembered that. Wow, this is hard. He's been suffering everywhere he goes. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. So here it is, verse 4. As was his custom, we learned early in the book of Acts, he always went, if in the city, he'd find, you know, if there's a synagogue, I'm going there first. I've got a captive audience, at least where I can start. Create a base. So he goes in the synagogue. There is one there. He's reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. So it was more than one Sabbath. And he's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. These are Greeks who are in the synagogue who haven't been circumcised yet, and they are fascinated by this Yahweh God and maybe on their way to conversion, to becoming Jews. And Paul preaches to them. Preaches using those two verbs, reasoning and persuading. Reasoning, it's an intellectual exchange. It's not emotional. It's not mystical. It's not experiential. It's right here in the brain. Thoughts, logical, truth, objective, universal. That's the word there for reasoning. And then he gives them truth, objective truth, objective universal binding truth that they can look at, assess, think through, go through the reasoning process. It's not an emotional conjoling. He gives the full counsel of God, the full gospel. Then he tries to close the deal by calling them to repent. That's what persuading means. You need to act now that you've heard what I've said, I've explained it. You have everything you need to know, and now you need to act on it. That's what persuade means. This is a call to repent and believe. Well, when he did that, most of the Jews in the city, they were insulted. They got angry. Who does this guy think he is? That happened on almost every synagogue that he went into. Verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, so... Uh, Silas and Timothy, they meet their rendezvous point. They come back to Corinth. Uh, they've been out visiting the new churches, ministering to them, collecting money for Paul. They come back. They got some generous uh, money from other churches, and they gave it to Paul. Paul, you know what? Hey, you don't have to do this church, uh, I mean, this tent making anymore, 10 hours a day. Here's, we have enough money for however long, so you can be freed up to do ministry all the time. You can talk to people, counsel, preach the word all day, every day. So he's no longer bivocational. You know, there is a philosophy of church work and church ministry out there that says the true spiritual church and Christian pastors are bivocational. And they have to be. No, they don't have to be. And why do they say that? Well, they use a couple passages or verses where Paul was working, especially in Corinth, where Paul didn't take money from the church at Corinth. And so they say, see that? Paul didn't take money from the church. So you need to be bivocational. You need to go get another full-time job and then serve in the church for free. Well, that was only Corinth because he took money from every other church. While he was there. And here's an example, even while he's in Corinth, that he was getting money, so he wasn't bivocational for the most of the time. He was freed up so he could do more. He's more available. Historically, this is why churches pay their staff or pay pastors, the man of God. Well, I want the man of God to come to my house at my convenience at 7 p.m. Well, he's got to be freed up to do that. He can't be distracted by so many other things of the world. And that's quite a blessing, actually, to local churches when they are able to pay those who have been trained and called by God and gifted in very special areas to meet and minister their spiritual needs. And here's an example of Paul doing that. So this is a tremendous blessing. Plus, 
you know, he was discouraged. He was alone. And now he's been encouraged by Aquila and Priscilla, just this wonderful Christian couple. And now he's got his buddies, Silas and Timothy, these wonderful men of God, coming to be in a, with Paul, fellowship, encouragement. Came down from Macedonia, and then Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews. What was he saying to the Jews? It was all about Jesus. It was the culmination. On, it was a simple message. Jesus is the Messiah of your Old Testament. Jesus is the, I mean, it was just, he was like a broken record. Same thing everywhere Paul went. Same message. Not adapting his message, changing his message, depending upon the culture or who the people were, what the city was like, or what their education level was, or whether they were male or female. It was always the message of Jesus Christ. That's why later when he writes the Corinthians, you know that when I came to you, I preached Christ in him crucified. And that's why he wrote in Galatians, same thing at the last chapter, Galatians 6. I don't boast in anything save the cross of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. Paul is a wonderful, wonderful model example of being Christ-centered in your ministry. That's what we do in ministry. It's the main thing. Preaching Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only Savior. He died on the cross in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He absorbed the wrath of God as God poured out His wrath on sinners. Instead of doing that, He poured it on Jesus. So that if you believe He's your substitute, you can be forgiven of your sin that you deserve that could condemn you eternally to hell. Jesus was your substitute. And all you have to do is believe that by faith. It's a gift from God. That is good news. And it doesn't matter what your sins were, how bad, notorious, horrible. All of them washed away in the blood of Jesus by grace, through faith, apart from works. That is good news. That was his message. You would think they would welcome this good news. They don't. Verse 6 says they resisted. The Greek word is very specific, and it's like they, they armed up for battle. That's what it means. They got in battle array. So they're listening to this. So this was kind of a progressive thing. They're listening. Wait, who's this new guy? Hmm, this is, he does know the Old Testament, pronounces his Hebrew accurately. Huh. Very insightful. He has a comprehensive command from all the way to Genesis to Malachi or Chronicles. And then he starts saying things that, oh, wait a minute. Who? Jesus? Who's this Jesus? Sin? By grace through faith for everyone, not just Jews, but also Gentiles? What? And you can just see their Anger it begins to percolate till it culminates in absolute rejection, manifesting itself towards Paul as resistance as they're ready for war. And they blaspheme. That's a verbal. They're, they're sneering. They're saying things. They're cursing Paul, the guest preacher. We, we would be shocked if we were able to see what was going on. It's like, wow, this is getting out of control got a riot on our hands. These guys are getting angry. They're frothing at the mouth. They're grinding their teeth. They're turning red. Veins are popping out of their head. They're getting, they look like they're going to get violent in a second. That's how it went. That's how they murdered Stephen. Well, before it could explode, it says Paul shook out his garments. That was the, so the familiar uh, phrase where you shake the dust off your sandals. That was a, a visible way of showing, you know what? Uh, you got the truth from me and you didn't want it. So I'm shaking the dust off and I'm leaving and you're on your own. And that's what Jews would do to unclean Gentiles. Well, Paul turns around. Not only does he shake his shoes, he shakes his entire, all of his clothes. You know what? I gave you the truth. I want nothing to do with you. I'm leaving all of you behind. Because you're rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shook out his garment. What a, what a sign. What a public display of... They would have been incredibly offended by that. But he got this from the Old Testament. This is what the prophets would do when they were rejected. Not only that, he quotes the prophets like Ezekiel and what he says. So he's acting like a prophet. Paul was a prophet. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. You know what? You're accountable to God now. This is true. This is one of the most frightening phrases in the Bible. Your blood be on your own head. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in its entirety, the fullness of truth from the Bible about who Jesus is and what Jesus did on your behalf as a sinner so that you might be saved and come to a right relationship with the God of the universe who is also the judge in addition to being the Savior. And you willfully, willingly, knowingly reject that message. 
your blood is on your own head. It's frightening. And there are people who hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over again, and they, and they don't respond. And they are just heaping up God's judgment. It's like the, the truth is like the sun, truth of the gospel. And people respond one of two ways. It's like the same sun that melts the wax of softened hearts is the same sun that hardens the clay of those who won't believe. And the more exposure they have, the harder they get. It's frightening. Your blood be on your own head. I am clean. I'm not responsible for you anymore. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. From now on, while I'm in Corinth, I am going to go just to the Gentiles. I'm done with this synagogue. That's what he meant. Now, some people actually get saved in that synagogue. We're going to see that in a second after the hostility. So let's go on to point number three. So Paul comes into Corinth. He's incredibly discouraged. He's battle-wounded. He's isolated. He's alone. He didn't have much success in Athens. Uh, He's been chased out of every city for the last six months. He's not with his people back in Antioch, his home church. Uh, It's been a a long and rigorous trying ride. And he's, get this, and he's a fallen, frail human. Paul has the gamut of emotions. He can be excited, but he can be incredibly discouraged. I dare say there are times where Paul got depressed. If you go through the full gamut of emotions, you don't need to be discouraged and think you're weird. If you don't go through the full gamut of emotions, you are weird. There's nothing wrong with being down, discouraged, and distressed. That's why it's so dangerous in our culture. Oh, you're depressed? You're discouraged? Here, take a pill. No. You're discouraged? Why are you discouraged? What's making you discouraged? Oh, you know what? That's legitimate. That experience can legitimately make you discouraged and depressed. I understand that. I get that way. And if you're a Christian, you have resources in Christ in the midst of discouragement. And he provides. Oh, I'm, I need to be, you know, what is the answer to depression and discouragement? Is to be encouraged. You need to be encouraged. And God knows that. And that's point number three. Sovereign stability. Paul is down in the dumps and he needs to be encouraged. You know what? Paul was at almost at the end, just ready to throw in the towel. Really? That's how bad it was. God knew that. Jesus knew that. And said, that ain't going to happen. Paul, you still got 15 years for me to serve. So what is Jesus comes in to encourage? And we need encouragement like that. So here's how God encouraged Paul. Sovereign stability. God encouraged Paul to keep church planting. Then he left... Verse 7, then he left there, the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, who was probably in the synagogue, Gentile, probably got saved. And this guy's house literally shared a wall with the synagogue. That's what that Greek word means. Whose house was next to the synagogue, they, they shared a wall. So here are the Jews, let's get this guy out of here. And they did successfully, and he lives next door for the next year and a half. They had to see Paul every single day. How, how irritating was that? And Paul couldn't help himself as he's sharing truth with these Jews coming to the synagogue, coming and going, planting seeds, watering seeds. You know what? One of the guys got saved at the synagogue. Not just any guy. Synagogues were run by a plurality of, like, elders. That's where the church gets elders from, by the way, from the Jewish community in the Old Testament. So there were rulers of the synagogue, a plurality of them. And one of them is named Crispus. He is a ruler of the city. He's in charge. He's a man of authority. And he heard the gospel again and again. And guess what? Oop, he got saved. Oh, man, that just ruined the plans of all these unbelieving Jews. Irritated them to no end. And so they become irate and enraged. How dare you pollute the mind of one of our key synagogue leaders so that he apostates, abandons the Jewish faith and turns to this cultic Christianity. Who do you think you are, Paul? So it starts to heat up. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians when they heard they were believing and being baptized. So Paul's down in the dumps. He needs to be encouraged, and Jesus is going to encourage him. So one of the first things Jesus or God does to encourage Paul is he lets Paul see some fruit right there on the spot. Boom, you know what? You preach the gospel, and people are getting saved. Not only are people getting saved, these Gentiles, one of the main leaders in the synagogue, a Jewish synagogue leader gets saved, Crispus. How awesome is that? 
And we read about Christmas in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, you know, when I came to you, I didn't baptize anybody, and I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody except two guys, Crispus and Gaius. Here he is. Paul left the rest of the baptizing of all those who got saved in Corinth to his partners in ministry and other Christians. But he believed in the Lord. Notice, Christmas believed in the Lord. He believed the gospel. He believed the truth Paul preached in the synagogue about Jesus. And then Christmas went to his house, and he told everybody. And if he was married, his wife believed, and anybody else, and associates, or maybe great-grandma or whoever lives in the house. And they, they embraced the gospel message so that the whole household, whoever lived there, got saved. They believed. The whole household believed. That means people living in the, the house house with understanding, as one of the Old Testament books says. Those who listened and heard with understanding. These are people who could understand the message. This isn't babies. Christmas's whole household believed, is what it says. So those who were old enough to understand the message believed. That's what household means in this context. They had to be old enough to understand the message. If Christmas had a two-month-old baby in his house, that two-month-old didn't believe. Because... A two-month-old can't. That's important because of what it says about baptism here. His whole household believed. And many of the Corinthians also believed. When they heard, they were believing and being baptized. So I want to make a point about baptism here. Who should we baptize? Well, the testimony of Scripture, the New Testament, Jesus, the apostles, the Bible, the only people we should be baptizing are people who, it's right here. Here's the order. Paul preached the gospel. We know that. He preached about Jesus, and it says at the end of verse 8, when they heard, that means the preaching, they could understand it, then they believed it, that's an act of the will. Do we do anything to get saved? Yes, we believe. Do we believe? do anything to get saved? Yes, we repent. That's what they did. They heard, they could understand it. This isn't babies. These are adults who could understand. They heard the message, they believed And then after they got saved, then they are baptized. And they're not sprinkled, they are dunked because that's what baptizo means. Very important. And that's the model all throughout the book of Acts. And so this is incredibly encouraging to Paul. He's just, man, his heart is full now. In addition to that, he still had fear, he still had questions, he still had doubts. So verse 9, Jesus makes a special appearance in verse 9. And the Lord himself, and I believe it is Jesus, said to Paul in the night by a vision because Paul was a prophet. And an apostle, Paul, do not be afraid. In other words, literally, Paul, stop being afraid. Why? Because Paul was afraid. Stop being afraid. He's afraid of the Jews turning on him. He's afraid of getting beat up again, afraid of getting chased out of town. Human. But go on speaking. Do not be silent. Be courageous. Open up your mouth. Preach boldly. You used to do it. Why? Jesus says, for I am with you. I am with you. I will empower you. I am by your side. No man will attack you. Boy, he needed to hear that. He got beat up in Lystra, stoned to death, practically. He got beat up in Philippi, beaten with rods, almost to death. Nobody's going to attack you here in Corinth, Paul, at least physically. Um, No one will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many. Get this, I have many people in the city. So that's God's sovereignty. He knows who the elect are is what that means. Even though election is true, God didn't say to Paul, okay, I, I know the elect, and the elect, the elect will be saved, and the elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. Therefore, Paul, don't do anything, because they're going to get saved anyway. He doesn't say that. Because there are the elect out there, you need to spread the seed of the word of God everywhere. And the spirit of God will work on the seed of God on the heart of the elect and draw them to Christ. That's how it works. From God's point of view and man's point of view, they go together. Verse 11. So Paul was comforted. He was encouraged. And so he settled there in Corinth for another year and six months. So he, his total time in Corinth is probably about two years. Uh, reached, he's uh, teaching the word of God among them for that entire time. Plants a church, grows the church, uh, gives them doctrine, trying to train up leaders. Uh, his Silas and Timothy were with him. While he's there, he gets to write First and Second Thessalonians. Amazing. Wonderful ministry that Paul had among the Corinthians. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to apply this message and these many truths to our own hearts, individually and also corporately as a church. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the church, the body of Christ. We thank you for your grace shown through the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. I thank you for every person here, Lord, that knows you legitimately, sincerely, on a very personal level because they heard the gospel. They understood who Jesus is. They understood their own sin. They repented of sin. They believed in you, and as a result, you you saved and adopted us into your family forever. What a precious, precious gift. And God, I pray for those who haven't done that yet. You keep working on their hearts, help them to understand, illumine them with your Holy Spirit, and bring the fullness of truth to their mind so that they might embrace you as Savior. We commit our time to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.